there was no question of giving up. There was something about Everest that really felt like I was meant to be there. Pressure is paralyzing. And it, the sooner we realize that and understand how we can get our mindsets around it, that's a superpower. I feel grateful that it went that way. I would never have gone on to push myself to achieve the next goal in my life. I am angry at myself for it. But ultimately, in the long run, when you really get to take that big step back and see how it all panned out, it was a good thing. Hello and welcome to the Mindset Matters podcast. I'm Dr. Gemma Lee Roberts. When we look at what it takes to achieve our goals, we know that mindset matters. But once you succeed, what happens next? In this episode, Benita Norris shares her incredible story of how she overcame all odds to become the youngest person to reach both the summit of Everest and the North Pole. Her story of reaching the summit of Everest is one of sheer determination, resilience, and of course, success and elation when she got to the top. But what happened next shook her world. A fall on her descent into the renowned death zone left her and her teammates in a perilous position. Her feelings about her incredible achievement were suddenly conflicted by loneliness and guilt as one careless mistake nearly cost them both their lives. Taking full accountability for the situation, Benita was able to process what happened and reframe her mindset. Listen to her story with me now and see what she learned from her experience of climbing Everest and how it helped her to achieve more in her life. I really hope you enjoy this episode. I was completely absorbed in Benita's stories during our chat. And I love her unique perspective on failure, resilience, and perseverance. There's so much that she can teach us all in these areas. In fact, if you want to learn more about developing your mindset to overcome challenges, check out the Mindset Matters Hub, where you'll find courses and resources that delve into the lessons we can learn from the way Benita has shaped her mindset to deal with success and failure. On a personal note, since recording this episode, Benita has had her second child. So huge congratulations, Benita. Hello, Benita. Welcome to the Mindset Matters podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to kind of jump in right at the start of where we're going to go with this podcast. And we will be talking about your story, so your journey to the top of Everest. And I've literally just finished your book, The Girls That Climbed Everest, which is one of my favourite books from a psychology perspective. So you'll be delving into that. But I want to start right at the start. So what does, what does thriving mean to you? It's a, such a great question. And I think for me, it means connection and connection to three things. Firstly, connection to nature. Secondly, connection to other people, your team, your family, people that you love, that make you feel like you belong. And finally, connection to yourself, to growing, to being in, into your body and your breath and, and just having goals that you're working towards. And I think if you can live a life where you're connected to those three things, nature, others and self, 
you will feel so much joy. And that for me is thriving. And I think that's really interesting because that comes out in your story, in your book, that you cover all of those aspects. Do you think that you knew that before your journey to Everest? Or do you think that's something that that perspective has kind of evolved over time? It's definitely evolved over time. In fact, I know exactly when, when the penny dropped for me that this is what, this, all the moments in my life where I have felt absolute joy, where I felt so present in the moment, so thankful to be alive, have been when those three things, I felt very connected strongly to them. So sometimes it's nature, sometimes it's a mountain, sometimes it's working really well as a team or doing something for somebody else. And then other times it's just working on yourself and knowing that you're progressing. And it was, it was actually when I went away and I did my yoga teacher training. And that's, you know, a whole school of philosophy that I found myself very respectful of, but also kind of thinking, I kind of have been out in the world and I've climbed these mountains. I've had a lot of experiences and I don't know if I agree with all of it. And it was there that I thought, what does make me feel like I thrive? And it, it, it really came down to those three things is being connected to nature, self and other. And then that's when you're you're present in life and, and you thrive. And I guess kind of thinking about your story and, 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 and where you've got to right now, how would you describe your journey to Everest? How did that start? How, how did it pan out? And what do you think about it now? What do you think about it now is a great question, but I'll start with the beginning. I was 20 years old. I'd never set foot on a mountain before. And I went to a lecture about mountaineering. And I listened as two mountaineers, Rob Cassidy and Kenton Call, who at that point were complete strangers to me, but became good friends since, described how they had just climbed Mount Everest. And they said when they reached the summit, they could actually look down and see the curvature of the earth beneath them. And there were hundreds of people in the audience that night, but for some reason, the bolt of lightning just struck me. And I left that room completely different to, to the person I'd come in. I was so inspired and I knew at that point I was going to climb Everest. I wanted to see the curvature of the earth from the top of the world with my own eyes. And so I, I wouldn't say it overnight, I turned my life upside down, but over the following two years, I took those first steps. I started learning how to climb and took those stepping stones um, going on bigger and bigger mountains, got a great team of support around me, Rob and Kenton included. And it went from there. But it was it was two years from from that lecture to the top of the world. So it's quite fast. And when I look back now, I think I'm really proud of that very young woman who just refused to take no for an answer in some ways. Um, there was a lot of self-doubt. There was a lot of doubt from other people. But I think overall what mattered most was just giving myself a chance. And, um, and I felt like I, I deserved that. I, I deserved to try. And so that's what I clung to. And, and, I, and I kept going. And uh, it worked out. It is astounding how quickly you ended up on the top of Everest. That was one of the things I took away from reading the book, that literally two years later, that's where you were. And there were various points in the book as well. And this is kind of one of them where it seems like you're really kind of tapped into your intuition and making decisions based on that. So you knew you were going to do that, even with self-doubt and even with other people doubting you as well. But there are other moments in the book as well where you talk about not following the crowd and 
following kind of what you think is the right thing to do. Where did that come from? I think intuition is so important. And I really sensed when I was sat in that lecture that there was just this fire that had ignited inside me. And it made sense to me. That is what I have to do with my life. There was no question of not doing it in some ways when it really came down to it, you know, when I was really thinking like, can someone like me climb a mountain like that? I I don't have any climbing skills. I don't have any money to pay for this very expensive hobby. But when I thought about giving up, it just didn't make any sense. That intuition proved correct. I went on not just to do Everest, but I've climbed for many, many years now. And even though I didn't, as I said, never set foot on a mountain before, I just knew that that was what I needed to do. And so I think we need to, we need to trust that. And it's very easy for other people to say, you? Really? No, come on. But they don't, no one knows you like you know yourself. And also, I think just because it hasn't been done before, just because you haven't done it before, it doesn't mean it's not achievable. Everyone's, you know, anything we achieve, you've got to start somewhere. We've, we've never done it before. Exactly. And, you know, a lot, I had a lot of naysayers in the beginning that were very much like, you know, as I said, like you, Everest, come on. and. For me, the, the feeling was, well, maybe you will be right, but what you're seeing today is not the person who's going to be on Everest. I'm on, a, this is a process. I'm at the start of a very long journey and who I am right now is not who I'm going to be tomorrow. And my mindset at the beginning was, I'm just going to keep my head down and every weekend go out and climb one meter higher. And today, I still see those same people that really doubted me in the beginning And they're still talking about the mountains that they're going to go and climb, whereas I've actually gone and climbed those mountains. So I just think, you know, it's it's so easy for people to just see you in that one moment, but they don't see the journey that you're on. And that's what you've got to keep your your mindset on. I think that's really interesting. And actually, I think that applies to everyone, whether we're climbing mountains or changing careers or starting families or whatever we're doing in life. We're, you know, it's so easy to think. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not sure I can take that next step. And I think when that's been reflected back to us from the world as well, because no one else has seen us make those changes or do those incredible things that where the potential is inside of us, but we just haven't reached it yet. I think it's a really important point to make sure that we are listening firstly to that intuition, but also building that self-belief that, yeah, we might not know how to do it. We may not have the answers now, but we can learn or we can figure this out or we can get help or support if we need to, but we can take those next steps. So much of that is, is resonates because, you know, you've got to take risks in life and you don't know if you're going to fail. You don't know if your worst fear will come true. And I think our fear is that we'll take that leap, we'll do that new thing and then it will go wrong and we'll be like, oh, you know, I should have listened to myself. I shouldn't have done it. But the truth is, the real truth is actually, we are capable of getting through tough times and you have to trust that whatever happens, you're going to be okay. You will find a way through it. And actually you might come out the other side being thankful that you pushed yourself. It didn't go quite to plan, but you learned something in the long run. And so I just think of uh, really when I'm thinking about taking risk or the uncertainty of the next step in the future of life, family, whatever it is, it's like whatever happens, we will make the most of it. And that's all you need to remember. That's the epitome of a growth mindset, I think. And it's really interesting. And something else I've really enjoyed in your book on kind of on this theme is your relationship with failure. It 100% is. And the fear of failure is what holds most of us back at one point or another of, you know, 
things going wrong or being embarrassed or shame that can come with that when things don't go to plan. And you talk about multiple points in your book where you could have been put off by failure and sometimes things didn't go to plan. But equally, that's kind of where your where your biggest successes came from is getting through that situation and, and continuing to work towards your goals. Um, where did that come? Were you like that as a child, do you think? Were you born with that mindset or where did it come from? I can't answer that question. I think um, I don't I don't know if you're born with it. I think I was influenced, obviously, by parents. And I saw I saw my dad in particular go through a lot of financial hardship and not give up and keep going and grow through that. So, you know, I've seen him as a very young girl fail in that in that way but picked himself back up again and life carried on. So I think that probably had an impact. I also had an eating disorder when I was a teenager, which I talk about in the book. And um, I had, you know, was down the deepest, darkest hole with that at, at one point. And at that point, you realize that there's actually nothing to lose. And that is probably one of at your lowest points. That's one of the most liberating realizations is that okay I can't I don't think I can go any lower than this so the there's there's literally I've already failed so there's no reason not to now give you know something else a go and try something different and I, I I think failure can be hugely motivating in so many different ways um I I with my eating disorder I I did often just say to myself I've already failed so there's no reason not to try today and see how if I can get through today because, you know, it doesn't matter. There's no pressure. And I've taken that into the climbing world. I, I think to myself before I head off to a mountain, I'm not going to get to the top, which is such a bizarre way to view it. And, and if I talk to a lot of like high performance coaches and people like that, then I don't know how that mindset sits with them. But for me, if I can say to myself, I've already failed then I can go, well, there's no pressure to get on the plane and fly to Islamabad or Kathmandu. And there's no pressure to get to base camp. We're just going to go and see how we do. So actually, that for me is really liberating. And I learned that as a teenager. But I, but I also learned, I think, from, as I said, from my family, that failure is not the all and end all. Like, life goes on. So you can, you can cope with it at the same time. Yeah. And so, and so for me, I, I don't know if it was was I was born with it but I definitely learned it through through like early experiences and it was interesting talking about failure and this idea of oh I'm not necessarily going to reach the top I'm just going to take one step after a time uh, one step after another when you climb so after you climbed Everest and you climbed the sister mountain how do I pronounce it let's see <laughs> I was I reading it and I was like <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce that I'll just ask yeah um it was really interesting I think reading not necessarily a different approach because you're I'm guessing you're using a lot of the same kind of physical techniques and the same skills that you've got, but kind of tapping into what you'd explained in your book around your mindset in that Everest was such a huge pressure in some ways because that's what you've been working towards. And yet when you went back and climbed the Sister Mountain, um, which is equally as high and sounds more difficult than actually reaching the summit of Everest, you, you explain in your book that 
you were focusing on one step at a time and exactly that mindset like you just said oh I'm probably not going to reach the top but it doesn't matter I'm just going to go to this part and I'm just going to do this bit and I'm just going to take this step and I'm just going to see what happens they it sounds like and perhaps that's experience as well because you'd already climbed you'd already achieved something amazing or maybe it's kind of just your mindset evolving over time but did you feel like that kind of climb later was less pressurized than climbing Everest no there's always a huge amount of pressure that you put on yourself with with every climb and the stakes get higher with every mountain because you're you're trying you know Everest is the highest but there are many thousands more climbs that are harder than Everest so there's always something to to turn your hand to and you've trained for it you might have been working towards this peak for nearly a year um so it does feel like the more you climb the the more pressure there is in some way especially as you as you get more experience you understand the risks a lot better so I, I I definitely think that for me it's it's a an odd way of like approaching such a big challenge and I and I'm not always every day telling myself I'm failed I've failed because I think that can do something to you as well but definitely just being like we're not going to get to the top but there's no reason not to take the next step in front of us and I think that that's the really important thing. It's like, even if, you, even if you're going to fail, you should still try anyway. And that's what I was always trying to like get into, into my head. It's just that getting as high as we can on this mountain is all, you know, is all that matters. And we will climb until that point comes. The overarching, whether we succeed or fail, you know, let's just assume we fail and there's less pressure. And it's worked for me with so many things in life. And I uh, even... My nephew, you know, has, has said before, like, I just don't know whether I want to continue with um, some sports training he was doing. And I was like, well, just turn up for the first, tell yourself you're not going to do it. You've, you've quit. But so then you can just go to that first session, knowing that you've already quit the season and see how you feel. And, he, and for him, that was like, yeah, I've quit, but I'm just going to go to that first session. And then obviously he carried on <laughs> and he did the whole season. So I, I think we pressure is paralyzing and it the sooner we realize that and understand how we can get our mindsets around it then we've conquered you know the most difficult things in life really which is like getting yourself going when there's all the reasons not to um and so pressure and failure if you can sort of flip it into something that works for you that's i think that's a superpower i think it is as well and I think we don't often think about it. I mean, some people thrive under pressure. They live for that. That's kind of what gets them moving and gets them motivated. Yeah, Whereas definitely. others, it just feels like too much and it can stop you. So I think it's about knowing where you are on that scale. And I think life is all full of contradictions. And we as human beings are completely full of contradictions. And if I just think right now to, um, you know, a hard rock climb or something when I've really felt like if I mess up here, I'm going to break my legs. If I just, if my thumb slips off um, because my hands are sweating, I am going to fall and potentially break something. And it's at that point where there's that perfect mixture. Our brains are so clever that we can simultaneously tell ourselves, it doesn't matter if you break a leg, you'll survive. But also I've got this, I can ace this, I will get to the top of this, there, there won't be any failure. And it's having those two things in tandem simultaneously that human beings manage to do. So I think it's all also, you know, the case that it's, it's having both that's really important. 
and um and that is something that I think as as a coach probably you you like when you're telling people advice you also think but the the opposite is also true <laughs> and um and that's definitely the case for me I find I find there's two sides of my brain talking to me at once when I'm trying to push through that kind of perceived limit and that is part of the beauty of being human isn't it we can have two thoughts at once we we can know that two things are true at the same time and I guess it's using Absolutely. that to your advantage yeah um can you tell me a little bit about raising sponsorship for your trip to Everest because this part of the book I mean the whole book had me gripped but even before you'd even set foot on even before you'd even got on the plane to go to, to, to start your climb it was already a real challenge and th- these are things that I'd never even considered before you know I, I didn't know anything about the climbing world so yeah can you tell me your sponsorship story when it came to to finding a sponsor I didn't have any money at all and it's when I look back I I can see now just how like disciplined and and stubborn I had to be to get that cash um I ended up cold calling hundreds upon hundreds of British businesses asking them if they would want to come on as a sponsor a brand partner and if I got to the top of the world I was hoping that there'd be lots of press coverage and that they could uh, benefit from that and I sold this to like many companies and sometimes you know the rejection would just be straight away on the phone that was in fact 99% of the time sometimes you get a meeting it would go up the chain and then you get shut down just after you sort of started to believe it might happen and then finally I, I contacted a company called Vocalink who were interested but I just think it was too much money and you know it was a really hard sell um so I kind of had this one company umming and ahhing but nothing was committed and I remember getting a call from our team leader just saying Benita you have to get the money to us like it's you're way past the deadline we're going in a month um you need to get the money to us as soon as possible and at that point I just thought this is over there is just no way I'm going to find the money in a week when I haven't found it in five months um and that's the logic right that is a very logical conclusion to think that but even at that point, I just remember, you know, the next morning, my alarm going off and telling me to get out of bed because I had to go for a run before work. And I remember thinking, it'd be so easy to stay in bed right now because logically, I'm never going to find that money. So what's the point in going training for a mountain I'm not going to climb? But actually, if I get out of bed right now, this is Everest. Getting out of bed right now is Everest. And if I want that mountain, I've got to show my commitment to it right here, right now. Even though no one's watching, I know that I'm here and I have to get myself out of bed if I want that mountain. And I, I got up and on the way to the woods where I run, I called. I was listening to the radio and it just clicked. Like, call a radio station. Get yourself in the news. Um, and uh, I called up Capital FM and I got on the radio with Lisa Snowden and Johnny Vaughan um, on the breakfast show. Of Capital and talked about Everest and uh, listening to that was the marketing director at Vocalink and he just called me back a few hours later and said like that was really cool and I think we get it now and actually we've changed our minds we want to give you every penny you need to go and climb your mountain as long as you mention Vocalink the next time you're in the national press and I thought you know I will get that tattooed on my forehead if you like <laughs> if you're willing to sponsor me so seeing um Paying my team a week later when Vocalink gave me, we signed that contract and my, my bank balance 
um, before I paid my team was £50,012, something like that. So it was a real proud moment because I just think it goes to show what you can achieve from like a complete standing start, you know, learning the climbing skills, building that support network and, and also finding the cash. It is possible with, with a big vision and with discipline. I was elated when I read about that in the book. And obviously I know the title of the book, I know you went to Everest, but even as I was reading, I was like, how is this even going to be possible? I don't know how you're going to find the money to do it. It was like reading a gripping thriller. And then when the money finally came through, I almost like cheered when I was reading. I was so relieved that it was actually all going. It's crazy as well, because it was in 2009, 2010. So we were coming out of the global financial crisis. No companies wanted to be sponsoring young athletes to be going off and, you know, wasting money climbing mountains. And so they took a real risk. But I did get to the top and they did get something like over a million pounds worth of free advertising when their logos on my kit were, you know, pictured in newspapers and things like that. So it paid off and they really like bucked the trend and did what they thought was right and it worked. And that just goes to show again, like follow your own path. But when I look back today, yeah, I, I still have to pinch myself and think like that could have so easily gone the other way if you'd have stayed in bed that morning you wouldn't have climbed Everest and so that when I had that thought like this is Everest right now like forget about the summit forget about the death zone getting out of bed this is this is what matters um and I and I'm so grateful to my young self for kind of realizing that and that is the point isn't it sometimes gets getting out of bed and starting something is your Everest and you we all make tons of these small choices every day and they can have such large impacts in the future but we have to make the choice like we we have to do whatever it is that we've committed to doing we have to take those steps we have to get out of bed um and it can feel so minor I think that's such a big lesson for anyone kind of approaching a challenge or changing something or wanting to achieve something sometimes bed is Everest or getting out of bed is Everest Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, and I think we are, in some ways, you know, I've talked about us being quite com complex creatures, but also we're very simple. And we like to be comfortable. We like to know what's going on. And we like to give ourselves excuses and reasons not to get uncomfortable. And if you allow those excuses to run free, then, you know, you're just not going to do anything. And there's that, that, uh, that coach that says, like, you have to just kind of five, four, three, two, one, jump up stop thinking stop overthinking it just like jump up and do it because our brains have this incredible ability to overthink tell us we can't do things when if we just did and stopped thinking so much we'd probably go quite far and I think that's one of the you know it's one of the beauties of being a human is that we can think about thinking that we can think about multiple things we can think about what our thoughts are and it's, it's so complex um, and it means that we have a really rich experience of life and it means that we can make really strong connections. And but also sometimes it just holds us back. Like you say, sometimes we just need to do the thing. It is just getting out of bed or, or ticking off something off your list or doing something you've committed to as well. Yeah, sometimes the not thinking is the most important thing. And that's been another huge realisation, especially in the mountains. You know, it's painful and there's so much ahead. And you're, you're scared. And there's so many things to think about. And they're not all very positive things. So you just don't think. And, I, and I, on the mountain, I, in the mountains generally, I will have like 
I'll count to 10 over and over again because just that action in my mind of going two, three, stops those intrusive thoughts. And it's trusting that, you know, whilst our brains are what make us this incredible species, you know, it's the most complex physical thing that we know of in the universe, the human brain, the human body is also this miracle. And if you just trust it and you allow it to use its intuition and to let it do what it's hundreds of thousands of years of evolution has trained it to do, which is push through, you know, real physical barriers and, and, and mental ones, if you just let it do that sometimes, then that is, that is all that it needs. Um, so stop overthinking and let your body do what it's designed to do. That really helped me as well when I was kind of struggling a lot halfway up a peak. I can't even imagine. So I've never climbed anything. I mean, there's not many hills that I've climbed, to be fair. I think I've done Machu Picchu. That was quite a... Um, well, oh, that, amazing, that really yeah. Quite tough, actually. Oh, that was a long time ago. It was the end, the end of six months travelling. So I had zero fitness. I'd been kind of travelling around the world, having fun. Um, and we decided to do that at the end. So that's not really anything. It's not a big climb or anything, but it felt like felt like my mountain I have to be honest when we were on yeah. there I was the least fit Absolutely. person I'd never climbed anything I'd never walked for days and days but we made it we got there I think kind of by the skin of our teeth by the end so I'm really intrigued to know what is it like to be on Everest um it's such a privilege when you get to base camp and you realize that all the trekkers are going home now and yet you get to stay and you know all the crowds thin out and then it's just you and your team um of course there are other teams there but suddenly there's this sense of like we are on the edge of something so much bigger and that is such an exciting electrifying feeling to start with you look up and you're surrounded by the majesty of these mountains around you it's so it's such a spiritual place you know that great legends like Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay have climbed before you. Um, and it's just, it's, it's just incredible to be there. I mean, for most people that make it to Everest, I'm sure for, for many of them, they got there by the skin of their teeth and it could have so easily gone either way, like for me. So when you arrive, even to get to the bottom of the mountain, it's like, oh, wow, I can't believe I've come this far. And then even just stepping onto the peak, it just feels so special because you've read all the books, you've seen all the movies, and to actually be doing it in real life, there is just this, uh, that sense of gratitude, I think, that I felt the whole time. The, um, the base camp is, is really buzzing. You know, it's, there's, it's a village. There are something like a thousand people there these days. I don't know how many it was when I did it, but there's just an atmosphere um, that uh, you're all in it together. And that's great. And it's international and it's, uh, it's, it's fun. You know, it's, it's lighthearted. When you then start to climb, you go from base camp and there are four more camps up the mountain before you push for the summit. And the plan from base camp is we don't just go straight to those four camps. We're going to go up to one at a time and then come back to base camp afterwards because our bodies have to acclimatize and, uh, what we're trying to do is build our resilience to the lack of oxygen up there. But the only way that you can do that is by firstly stressing your body to a new height and exposing it to that lack of air and then coming back down and resting. And that was such a great lesson about resilience for me is like, if you want to get stronger, rest is so important. So 
we did those rotations for about three or four, three, three weeks, I think, going up to 7,000 meters, coming back down again every time. And then, um, and then finally waited about a week for the weather window, which is when there is very low wind on the summit um, because we can climb in a lot of conditions, extreme cold or, or whatever, but strong winds is a no-no. So we waited for that. The weather window came in mid-May and then we climbed from base camp straight to the top and uh, I think it took us um, uh, three or four nights to get to the summit and then about two days, two nights to get back down again, so three days. And was there any point in your journey where you thought that you weren't going to make it or you didn't want to carry on anymore? Um, on Everest, no. I just, every day I just felt it was such a blessing to be there. I felt so strongly that I was meant to be here. You know, there was no question of giving up. And I think that that is, is quite actually a unique feeling because on many other mountains, I really have felt like, oh, you know, we're just, this is just pointless and those thoughts come in. But there was something about Everest that really felt like I was meant to be there. And uh, on other peaks, like for instance, my first ever expedition to the Himalayas to climb Mount Manaslu, which I talk about in the book, that was in some ways the hardest expedition compared to Everest because it was all new. I had never seen a huge avalanche before. I had never crossed such huge grass, uh, glaciers with crevasses like that before. I had never been at extreme altitude before. So it was actually the first time dealing with all of that that for me, I just had no concept of what I was capable of. Can I push through this? What's on the other side? I didn't know. Whereas when I came to Everest, I had Manaslu under my belt it, that you know that experience had really fortified me and um fortunately there was there was nothing on Everest that compared to how difficult Manaslu was so yeah I I I think the overarching feeling of for that particular expedition was just on the way up anyway it was just like how lucky am I to be here tell me about coming down Everest what that was like it was the complete opposite to going up. We reached the summit. That was an amazing 10 minutes on top of the world. But your, your thoughts instantly turn to, okay, we've got to get back down safe because actually the true finish is at base camp. This is only halfway. We can die over any point of the next three days as we descend the peak. There's no helicopter coming to get you up there. You have to retrace your footsteps and get yourself down through all the same dangers and in fact a lot of people argue that it's more dangerous coming down because with gravity on your side even though you're moving a lot quicker you're more likely to trip up you know we all know how easy it is to run down a hill but how much more likely you are to fall over doing it so we were descending from the top um feeling you know all sorts of emotions but mostly on that day that that was the most climbers i'd seen on the mountain in one area because up until that point, you're all on your own schedules. And then when the weather window comes, it forces everyone into a bottleneck. And we didn't have any queues. I couldn't, I don't know how people do it today with those big queues. But we did, we were on the way down, passing lots of people, just kind of having a little rest and slumped over. And I, I was kind of getting annoyed. Like, what are you doing? This is the death zone. Um, I, I was not going to rest until I was back at Camp 4. So we were passing all these people. It was taking a long time. 
and um and with with that frustration i guess um and my ego um i just was getting more and more like and angry and i picked up a piece of rope that was caught around a boulder on the hillary step and just like being like i'm done with this and try to jump off the edge of this uh ledge to go down onto the next section of the step you're not really clipped you are clipped into the rope but you're just holding it and sliding your your arms down it so that you can just kind of like go really fast as I pulled my weight onto the rope the rope flicked off this boulder came free all that slack came into the rope and I was suddenly free falling and I fell luckily I landed on the mountain and I was okay but I had really busted my back and my neck and at first it was okay but the more I walked the more with every foot hitting the ground I would have these jolts going up my spine blinding you know kind of pain in my head my shoulder I couldn't very quickly within about half an hour I couldn't actually walk um and um all of those people that I was getting annoyed with then passed me (laughs) as I was there and I remember the last person um coming past and being like do you realize you're literally the last person here and I was like yeah and he said do you need some painkillers and I was like yeah and he just kind of gave me some paracetamol or some I don't know what it was it could have been anything and I and then he left and that was it and I was with um my teammate uh, Lakpa Wongji and suddenly we were up in a dead zone on our own on Everest with the sun going down um and at that point Lakpa turned to me and said if we don't move we're going to die here and it was the look in his eyes the fear and also just the brutal honesty like sometimes that righteous anger is so important and like being able to just look someone in the eye and say how it is like if you don't get your ass to act together we are going to die that was the kick I needed I didn't need anyone to sugarcoat things at that point I needed someone to jolt me out of the pain I was in and be like it doesn't matter how bad you feel this is what's going to happen unless you do something about it and that was enough to get me over the south summit so when you come down from the summit you get down the hillary step and then you have to climb back up again over a ridge and then you then you're on your way down to camp four so that got me to the top of there but um from that point the sun was well and truly on its way down it was getting very cold and uh i was i was lucky that another teammate rick had sort of hung around at the south summit and was there lacker and and rick helped me down a few other when they were tired a, a few other Sherpas came and, and, and helped me. We finally got back to camp four, I think, 11 o'clock that evening. So I had been out on the mountain for 24 hours nonstop. Um, and uh, I was alive. I wasn't in any way frostbitten. I think, you know, we had oxygen bottles and things like that. So, But I was absolutely devastated because it had been the biggest success of my life that morning, getting to the top of Everest. And then the biggest failure on the way down, because obviously, you know, it was just one small mistake, but one small mistake up there is, has the biggest consequences. And I could have killed my teammates. So the guilt was just like horrendous. I felt so bad. I felt like I'd let my team down. And that then, you know, by the time we got back to base camp the next day, the next or the following, the day after that, 
I, I had no celebration in me because I just felt really guilty of how it had all turned out. And for a very long time after Everest, I was so messed up in my head because I couldn't separate that it had been the biggest life-changing thing I'd ever done that I was so proud of, but also had ended in the biggest failure. How does that work? Like, there's supposed to be this binary success and failure, and yet I left Everest with them being completely intertwined. And so that was kind of the next stage in my journey, if you like, as a mountaineer, was just trying to process that, get through it, and, like, make something good out of it. Do you feel a little bit cheated in your, like, not being able to celebrate that success and everything you've been working towards? No, never, never felt, never felt it like that. I felt like I knew why the mistake happened. I knew it didn't have to happen. If I had just been a lot more focused and concentrating, then I wouldn't have picked up that rope. There's nobody's fault than, than mine. And I feel grateful that it went that way because of what then happened next. And I think if I hadn't had that failure on Everest, I would never have gone on to push myself to achieve the next goal in my life. And therefore, I'm, I'm very, I'm actually very grateful for it now. And, um, and yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have, I'd, I've never looked back and thought, I wish that had gone differently. Um, uh, of course, I am angry at myself for it. But ultimately, in the long run, when you really get to take that big step back and see how it all panned out, it was a good thing, which is and nuts, right? <laughs> like human beings are yeah. so weird that we think, you know, we think that that bad thing that happened, it was actually the best thing that ever happened. We're so funny like that, but it's true. But that all depends on how you interpret the situation, because not everyone would necessarily do that. So that comes down to the way that you think about the situation either you've processed it and there's a lot about accountability in there as well so you talk about that in the book that you're accountable for that and there's other points in the book as well that I think you really touch on it was my choice it was it was it was up to me to get out of this it was up to me to make changes it was up to me to make these things happen or um and I think that's really really important definitely for building self-awareness so if you you want to kind of keep developing your mindset or you want to keep tackling new things or facing challenges or achieving things you do have to have that level of self-awareness and a lot of that does come down to being accountable which is why it's interesting that you said actually you didn't feel cheated because it was you that was accountable for that it's not that something happened to you and also really interesting like you said like one of the biggest failures is a success in the long run yeah exactly and you know it's a, it's about being honest with yourself and not laying the blame at anyone else and, and taking responsibility for, for your own actions. I would have been, you know, when I, when I have a low moment, I think, well, you know, if that was different, if, you know, so-and-so, and I won't go into those kind of details, but um, there were things that happened on that, that summit climb that should have been different and maybe there would have been a different outcome. But ultimately, I chose to put myself in the death zone that day. And so it doesn't matter what anyone else did. That was still my choice. And, um, and I had, when you do something like that, you have to accept that other, others might not be acting in the most perfect way. They might not make the best decisions, but you have accepted responsibility for that and you're going to go into the death zone anyway. So there's no point blaming anyone else for the situation other than yourself. Um, 
so obviously you know straight after I was I was full of pain and upset over over what had happened but I definitely only ever held myself accountable um and um and it, it just never would have made sense to have felt to have felt cheated um or or like it wasn't fair life's not fair we all make mistakes you just got to you've just got to accept that and um I think um as we've gone on you know through lockdown and and not having the most amount of interaction with people and and younger generations on social media as well you you sort of see that there's this reluctance to take full responsibility for ourselves and realize that it's actually us that that you know that needs to accept that we're not we're not the perfect person and that we can change and i i don't i don't always like the rhetoric that i sometimes see on social media which is about like if people don't agree with you then or you know if people don't like then shut them out because actually we're none of us are perfect and we're we can sometimes be the the toxic person and and the person that's not taking responsibility for our behavior and our actions and uh that that was just not something that I ever ever felt at all it was it was my fault and I was going to own it and um the next part of the book is is exactly how I I did that how did it feel being the last person on the mountain so when that person walked past and you know offered you painkillers which I'm sure was amazing at the time how did it feel kind of being the last person left there bizarrely it felt like being in my own disaster movie that was how I could describe it because your senses are quite dull and so fear is dull and that's why it was so important that Lakpa jolted me back into the reality of the situation with with his like we are going to die because at that point I was almost watching it as if I was watching a movie and it was it was dis- disjointed from me because of the lack of oxygen in my brain, the level of exhaustion from being out on the mountain for so long. Um, and so I'm thankful for that because it stopped me from panicking. Um, but at the same time, having like your senses staying sharp is like really key because <laughs> I was just too slow, too slow to realize how bad things were. But I remember the clouds rolling up and the fog kind of closing in and it going dark and it was just this feeling that the mountain was trying to take us and and that we had to get out we had to escape and um yeah it was it was like a disaster movie honestly when I was reading the book I felt like not like I can ever imagine what it must be like to be there but I literally felt like I was there from your descriptions of what was going on around you and what you were thinking um and that kind of elation it's really funny reading it because when you get back down to base camp I had a feeling of elation I was like yes that's amazing and yet when you're writing about it you're like I just felt terrible because obviously you're the person in that and I'm an observer in some way so it's really kind of interesting marrying those perspectives I guess and is that something that you've had to think about a little bit like obviously you've had to take accountability and you think about how it affects you and your potentially your team could have affected your team as well how does that kind of make you feel thinking that other people watch or even your team when you get back down to base camp are excited and 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 you're not quite feeling that how how does that feel to those different perspectives or different experiences of the situation yeah it was awful actually getting down to base camp our base camp cook bim had made us a cake like congratulations and we all were in our mess tent 
And I could just see, you know, the pure joy on my teammates' faces that they had come and done a good job. And I just felt like I didn't belong in that celebration because I had been the person that could have, you know, could have cost someone's life. And so I didn't want to eat the cake. I didn't want to celebrate. I just felt racked with guilt and failure. But the, the odd thing was at the same time, we, I had reached the summit and it, we had all gotten down alive and we were all, you know, we were all okay. So it was this, it, my brain, as we've spoken about already, was just swinging from like, you did it. Like two years ago, you dreamed of this moment. And then, you know, to the other side of the pendulum being like, you nearly killed someone, like you, you don't deserve to be here, go and hide in your tent and let them celebrate. So it was, um, it was probably the hardest time. And I, I, um, I got back to our hotel in Kathmandu and I walked into my hotel room and I just remember the silence and I, I remember the carpet underneath my feet and like nice things like that, but just that overwhelming sense of loneliness. Like I didn't belong to that team anymore because I had been the one to make the mistake. And uh, it was um, it was a really low, low point, um, but a very conflicting one as well, because then I'd have those memories of the summit. And I'd go, All went wrong. <laughs> bit of both, really. And, it, it, you know, it makes obviously a very interesting story and also probably shapes, like you said, it shapes what you did next in your life. And, and you know, what, what came next for you after Everest? Well, um, the bizarre thing was I then got home and my amazing sponsor, Vocalink, had been working night and day to get my story into the papers. And the story around my fall hadn't really been as well documented, although it, they did know about it. But the press just were like, this is amazing. She's 22. We haven't had a story like this for a while. And they splashed me over the front cover of every British newspaper. I was on every news channel i was met with uh, you know news crews at the airport they journalists were outside our house it was a media storm and it was all really positive and yet i just felt like a fraud i was like they shouldn't be interviewing me they should be interviewing my team all of that stuff i felt bad because my parents were so worried sick about me and when i got home i think they just wanted to be with me privately and not have these like this whole press thing to do but I owed it to my sponsor and I wanted to do it with them and so we did like a week of, of press and uh, at that whole time I just felt very numb because I had to go through the motions of it but when people would be like it's a huge achievement I'd kind of be like it was it really you know I, I just couldn't get my head around the success I think that's a very human thing we always lean towards the thing that went wrong rather than what went right and I definitely think that's probably something that at the time I really needed to work on and just be a bit more kind to myself because it wasn't doing me any good, like thinking, oh, they're just saying that or they're, they're wrong to say that. But it, it definitely, you know, that that was the case at first with all of, of that attention. And then after that, when I when the media went away, <laughs> that's when I got to process what happened. And I realized that I didn't want to give up on climbing. That's what a lot of people were saying to me. You're not going to do any more, are you? And at first I was like, no way. I'm not ever putting myself through that again. Near death experience. But as the summer went on and my great friends were taking me back to the, the basics, you know, simple rock climbing on the south coast over the sea, lovely like trips to the Lake District. I just fell back in love with 
the, the simple things about being connected to nature, being connected to myself, being connected to a, a team, reminding myself that that's why I climb, right? For that sense of being present. And I felt very strongly that there was unfinished business with LACPA, especially, and that maybe, maybe I wasn't this awful person and this awful climber. Maybe if I took what I happened on Everest and like did something about it, you know, took a, learned a big lesson, I could actually turn it around. So my goal was then to go back to the Himalayas and climb an 8,000 meter peak with LACPA. And that took another two years. And we went on an expedition um, to, to the Himalayas in the meantime, but not on a big peak, just a kind of, well, a 7,000, near 7,000 meter peak. So it was still a very big expedition. But my whole goal through that whole time was I could imagine getting on, on a big mountain, a really big mountain with LACPA and doing it right and getting down safely and getting you know the whole experience just being perfect and being able to like say to him thank you for saving my life that day and you know I've learned from it I'm not that same person um so it wasn't all in vain and that was my goal and that's what I worked towards for two years finally in 2012 got to that big mountain Lotsi the sister peak of Everest and uh it um it didn't feel like Everest you know, when we got to Everest, it was like this amazing feeling this time being being back because the sister peaks. So the Everest base camp also services Lotsi. And you actually climb the same route through the Kumbu Icefall, the Western Coombe, up the Lotsi face. And at that point at Camp 3, the, the route split and you either go up Lotsi or you go up Everest. So it was like retracing those footsteps was very cathartic in that sense. But the mountain felt different. It felt there was this ominous sense of doom, basically. Huge avalanches, massive Serac falls. Um, one day an avalanche so big it completely obliterated Camp 1 on, on Everest, which had about 30 tents there. So it felt very different. And that whole time, that was when I was saying to my logistics manager, Henry, this is never going to happen, is it, Henry? Like, we're not getting to the top of this mountain. I wasn't the only one thinking that. There were many other teams who pulled off the peak. It was just too dangerous that year. It wasn't, you know, this is not the year for it. It's too unstable. And so hundreds of people and Sherpas left. And when everyone's packing their bags and you're staying, there's a sense of like, are we suicidal? Do they know something that we don't know? But Henry just said to me, come on, we probably won't get to the top. You, well, he wasn't climbing with us. He was just managing from base camp. But he was like, you, you won't get to the top, but what's stopping you from climbing today? And there wasn't anything stopping us that day. And that was his mentality. It's like, as long as you can climb, you will climb. So we saw all these people leave and we stayed and um, it paid off. We got to camp four, our final final camp and left the tent at 11 o'clock that night I was with a team of four Lakpa was one of the teammates and we looked over at Everest it was only a few hundred meters away and we could see all the head torches climbing up Everest in the darkness the people that had stayed for that expedition but then looking up at our mountain there was just darkness there was not a single head torch and we climbed to the top it was beautiful climbing very technical and then we got to the summit at sunrise and um, it was amazing to sit there on this knife edge ridge with LACPA and just kind of 
grab his hand and, and look over at Everest together and just be like, thank you, man. And he slapped me on the back and he just, there was a sense of like, yeah, that was, we've gotten through that now. <laughs> but it was just wonderful to, to be able to see Everest that close and to see the climbers coming down from the summit and to realize how far I'd come in two years and how easily that night could have been the end of my climbing career. But actually it spurred me on to do this far more difficult climb and in style, uh, we climbed it so well. And um, to be there with Lakpa and to feel like it had come full circle. Um, and then obviously the descent came and I'd learned this kind of technique of having a drill sergeant in my head. Like there is no room for any emotion, for any thoughts, if it's not about the next footstep. So it's like, concentrate. I don't care that you're tired. I don't care that you can smell water because you're so dehydrated. You stop thinking about that. You keep concentrating. That's just like angry voice in my head the whole way down, just telling me to keep, keep my eye on the ball. And we got to, to base camp and it was the best feeling in the world. And when that cake came out the second time, uh, <laughs> you know, it was, I was there. I was like, double park me with the beers. I am, I belong. I am celebrating. And I truly felt like I was in that moment celebrating not just Lotsi, but Everest as well. For me, Lotsi was my Everest. Uh, Everest was definitely only part of the journey. And at the time, I didn't know that, but it was only when I could look back that I could see how it all joined together. So it's, it was, I'm, I'm grateful that I had the courage to try again after like an epic failure because it all worked out and it worked out 10 times better. It sounds absolutely magical being on the top. I can't even imagine what it must be like to see the sunrise at the summit yeah. of a mountain. Is it something you yeah. think you'll think about forever? Did you think about it a lot? No, I, I mean, um, I'm a mum now and I'm seven months pregnant and I, I'm working hard and I've got different projects on. It's, it's nice to actually reflect upon it with you this morning because it brings back so many memories. I will say that the lessons that it taught me are with me all the time. And so when something does go wrong in life, which of course it always does, my, my instant thing is like, okay, failure happens, like mistakes happen, like how are you going to learn from it? And it's all those kind of lessons that the mountains have taught me that stay with me far more than the waking up in the morning and being like, oh, I climbed Everest. You know, that never happens. Life goes on. But the, the lessons certainly stay. And it's really interesting that you said Lotsi was your Everest or that was kind of the finishing of the story, because and I think that's a lesson for everyone in life in that sometimes when things are really challenging, it's really tempting to stop. It's really tempting to give up or to change course. Um, and self-doubt can creep in as well but the chances are if you think like you know think about your life as a book you could be at chapter five you could have like 10 more chapters to come yet so if you give up at that point you're ending the story far too short you could you, you could have way more ahead of you things that you could be doing or achieving or experiencing so it's really interesting that when you set out for to climb Everest that was the end of your story it was getting to the summit of Everest but actually now you look back like that wasn't the end of the story that was probably halfway through the story yeah exactly and it, and it's it's that thing isn't it of just when we can get so easily overwhelmed by the nitty-gritty of every day and and overwhelmed by by the small things that just swamp us every day and being able to see a way forward or see a way out is just uh, it feels impossible sometimes but um 
as someone who's been through it uh, and I have to remind myself of this as well even like now when I'm like oh I'm just there's too much going on you know you just have to find meaning in that journey you have to find meaning in the hardship you have to think to yourself what's the story I'm going to tell my grandkids that I gave up when it got hard or that I pushed through and I took the risk and I didn't know what was going to happen but I made it I made it what I what I wanted made it what the best I could made the best I could with it and that was all I was trying to do after Everest I was trying to make the best of that failure I didn't know that it was going to end up being like the best experience of my life going to Lotsi but just having that that mindset of like in the long run I want to be able to look back and have learned something that was that was good enough but yeah it's it's when you look back, it all makes sense, doesn't it? As Steve Jobs once said, you can only connect the dots looking back, never looking forward. So just have that faith and trust trust the unknown and trust that you'll be able to cope with whatever life throws at you. And what would you say to someone who was looking to make a change or they want to achieve something or they've got an idea and they've got no like no clue how to reach that? You know, thinking back to when you were, you know, 19 years old and what you knew, what would you advise to people that, that want to achieve something and perhaps there is that self-doubt niggling in the back of their head or they're not sure if they can actually make it happen? Well, there's just there's just so much data on this um, that you see um, that you that you see, you know, there's there's lots of data around people that go to Ivy League universities tend to publish less papers because they feel like the people around them are way more clever than them. And therefore, they, they just don't put themselves out there. But students that go to less than Ivy League uh, schools tend to publish a lot more papers because there's just a lot less peer pressure. And there's, there's that worry that we're just not good enough. The truth is, you will find yourself frustrated in life five years down the line when someone else does the thing that you wanted and they just got on with it. And they might not even have been as, as good at you. you. You think I could have done that better. But the fact is, you didn't do it because you thought... Oh, you know, I'm not good enough or whatever it was where someone else just got on with it. So just get on with it, <laughs> for goodness sake. That's what I'm constantly trying to tell myself. You don't want to see anyone else really living out your life dreams. And and it's the worst thing when you know that like they just went for it and you could have done the same thing, but you didn't. So yeah, just start that, you know, time and time again, we hear athletes saying the hardest part of my run is putting my trainers on and going going to the door uh people say you know the hardest part of yoga is just getting to the mat the hardest part of of climbing everest is just being able to take that first footstep out the tent when you're so cozy and warm inside it and you don't want to go out into the, the dangers of the mountain so it's if you can just manage to conquer those initial self-doubts and just get yourself going stop thinking then anything, I think anything is possible. And we overthink so much in life and it paralyzes us. Just get started. You will mess up, but you will learn from it. And that's okay. Better to try and fail than to not try at all. That's what I always think. Yeah, that's brilliant. Brilliant advice. And what are you working on at the moment? Like what's, you, I'm guessing right now you're not climbing, being seven months pregnant, but generally are you still climbing? What are the projects that you're working on now? Well, I have a four, nearly four, so she's sort of coming towards four and a half, I guess. Well, she's, she's not been four that long. So by the time my baby's here, the next one's here, then uh, she'll be about four and a half. So with pregnancy on top and getting pregnant, like that, there's a good 
six years really since I was last on a big expedition uh, in the Karakoram when I tried to climb K2, which is the second highest peak in the world. So the mountains actually do feel very far away. And I know a lot's changed in the time that I've been raising my, my family. Lots more people there now, lots more queues. It's gotten very popular. So I don't know what to expect going back into it. I do have my dreams, like my mountain goals, which when this baby is a bit older, I'm hoping that I'll be able to like finally turn my mind to. But it's not a great sport if you're a, a mother or a father because it, in, it cry, requires you to take six weeks away from your loved ones to go to the Himalayas. It's not like, you know, if I'd done Iron Man, it would be like a horrendous day <laughs> or something like that. It's a huge commitment. So yeah, there's, there's that. I, there's great hope for the future that I will continue to climb, you know, family giving me their blessing to do so. But other than that, I'm currently, uh, I do a lot of, of speaking work, which definitely fills my time. And I'm also writing my second book as well. And that is in itself a mountain, which requires so much motivational. And, you know, I'm coaching myself through it because sometimes those words feel like like those pointless little steps up Everest when you're like, I'm getting nowhere. And I just keep reminding myself of all the things I've learned to keep going. Because uh, writing a novel is is so hard. You know, you, you realize you're up against this industry that is so competitive. The chances of success are so slim. So who knows? I've got no guarantee that I will sell the novel. And I could have put in two years of work and it all be for nothing if I don't actually ever get published. But um, sometimes the process in itself is, is enough and the joy of the moments when it's working and, and learning about how to do it and craft it and the achievement of getting to the end is actually what I'm looking forward to. So uh, I will keep going with that despite having no guarantee of ever, ever seeing the light of day. I think that's amazing though, because you're practicing what you preach. You're taking one step at a time, you're giving it a go, not letting the idea yeah. of potential failure. Who knows? It could be a failure, it could be a success. We don't know. Well, not letting that I'm telling myself, yeah, I'm telling myself it will fail, but I'm going to do it anyway. And there is a quote that you often see floating around, which is, what would you do if you knew you wouldn't fail? And I love that. I think it's really inspiring. But I also like to flip it and ask myself, what would I do if I knew I would fail? And the answer is, I would still write this novel. And that really gets to like the heart of, of I think, sometimes what matters to you is that just the, if the process of doing it is enough, then it doesn't matter about the outcome. And, and it's those things in life. If that's what makes you buzz, then that's what you should kind of draw, be drawn towards. I think that is the perfect note to wrap up. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your experience and your perspective and talking about your mindset and how that's evolved and, and how it's helped you on your journey as well. So thank you. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. The Mindset Matters podcast is not-for-profit supporting Bloom Mental Health UK's resilience programme for young people. Each time you listen to an episode, you're helping teens and young adults benefit from getting the support they need to become more resilient. You can discover more about the Bloom programme and their impact at mentalhealth-uk.org. Well, I'm sure you'll agree, Benita is quite an inspiration. Where many of us may have given up on our dreams or felt defeated by our mistakes, Benita has shown us that actually our biggest obstacle can be a negative mindset. 
There are two really standout moments for me in Benita's story that shows how mindset matters, both at times where we're striving to achieve our goals and at times where we're facing adversity. First, by telling herself, I've already failed and removing all expectation of success, she created a sense of relief and freedom to fail without consequence. Using this technique allows us to remove emotional discomfort and put aside fear and anxiety. Instead of telling ourselves something is impossible, we give ourselves the opportunities to try and see if something might actually be possible. Secondly, the ability to accept responsibility for her mistakes, and this is a really interesting one. How many of you have struggled with admitting you were wrong or being defeated by guilt? I know I've been there many times in my life. But when we accept failure, the mistakes we encounter lead us to learn new things and develop key skills and strategies that support a growth mindset, which is what we need to push on and achieve our goals. So remember, it's not money, time, the opinions of others or the errors in our judgment that stop us from achieving our goals. It's our mindset. And if you can flip your perspective and say to yourself, well, I've already failed. Only success can come from anything I do, so why not just try it anyway? You might just set yourself on a path to achieving your kind of success. 